Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. Additional support comes from State Street, produced by KUER. Hosts Sean Higgins and Sage Miller take a fresh look at politics the Utah way. Get episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or at statestreetpod.org. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Doug Wilkes, executive editor of the Deseret News, Lindsay Ertz, reporter for KSL News Radio, and Daniel Woodruff, reporter for KUTV2 News. So glad you're with us this evening. This has been such an interesting and sort of unprecedented week in politics. And we're gonna get into a couple of these key issues, but Doug, I wanna start with you uh, on one very close to home. A big policy discussion is happening right now about the Office of the Attorney General. Specifically, uh, Representative Mike McKell is looking at a potential constitutional amendment to change how we get our Attorney General. Right now we vote, that would be one where potentially the attorney general gets appointed. Well, my question would be, what's the problem you're trying to solve, right? The further you get away from the electorate, I would think that's not a good idea. Um, there are strengths for having a, a attorney general appointed, but the problem I think we're trying to solve is you want an engaged electorate. You want an electorate who understands who the office holders are, who the candidates are. So I would be, hesitant to simply throw it out to try and solve a problem that you haven't yet identified. And I think yeah. one of the problems that the legislature is trying to get at, to Doug's point, what problem are you trying to solve, is they're trying to get eyes on the office. Is, uh, you know, this has been an office that for, uh, you know, several years have, has had multiple AGs with uh, different uh, corruption situations, although um, none were ever uh, found guilty of that, but uh, the legislature at this point and the situation with Attorney General Sean Reyes and um, his close friend Tim Ballard and the questions that surround that I think is the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, um, in terms of uh, wanting to know how the office is being run. Is it being run by Sean Reyes or is it being run by the 500 other attorneys that are there and Sean Reyes is just a figurehead? Um, and they've talked about several ways to do that. One of those is making it appointed versus elected. Another way could be a possible legislative audit, right? Some of these different scenarios in which, um, or is it running a candidate yeah. against Sean Reyes? So lots of different scenarios, but I think what they're ultimately trying to get at is eyes on the office. Mm -hmm. uh, Daniel, this is interesting because we have seen this in the past. I think Senator Todd Weiler approached this once before, but it's back pretty much in earnest right now, at least from uh, Representative McKay who is an attorney as well. You've been in these meetings. In fact, you've been in a meeting with the attorney general talking about this potential legislation. Talk about what you heard. Well, so Senator McKell, I think I want to point out too that he said his other concern is that he feels Sean Reyes has been absent from the office. And so not only just about situations of who's corrupt or who's not, but Senator McKell said he believes that over the last couple of attorney generals, we've seen a number of issues and one of them he identified as absence. As far as asking 
Sean Reyes about this, and I think we've got a quote to share from him. Uh, Sean Reyes's office doesn't like it. Keep in mind, he was appointed after John Swallow resigned. So this is a situation where our attorney general that we're talking about was appointed, although he's been reelected a number of times. But they basically said, and I don't know, Jason, if you want to uh, pull up the quote, but uh, he basically said it's not a good idea as far as representing the people. Yeah, let's let's put, pull it up and have you talk about that one for just a second, Daniel, because it, it is interesting as we get ready for this. 43 states have an elected position here for the attorney general. So this would be a little bit of an outlier, but this is the response from Sean Reyes. Appointed AGs can't exercise independent discretion or decision-making, and they become just an extension of the governor or whomever appoints them. So clearly not a fan of this idea. And in 2014, when this was brought up, I went back and looked at the vote. In order to pass this, because it would amend the Constitution, you have to pass by a veto-proof majority in both the Senate and the House, that's two-thirds. You look at the vote in 2014, it got, I think it was 16 to 13. Point is, 16 votes is not enough. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it did not advance the rest of the session. Now, Senator McKell told me, and probably told others, that he feels that his colleagues are on board this time, but I think a lot of lawmakers say that about their bills. We'll I see how that goes. Thing. You have tools in place. The audit is a good tool. Investigations are a good tool. The media investigates and has uh, ability to do grandma and other yeah. things to get records. So there are things in place with an electorate. If the electorate is engaged, you can, you can get at what you need to to fight corruption. And if my unscientific Twitter poll is any indication about how people I'm, feel I'm sure about it this, <laughs> it clearly is. Um, I think that um, less power for the people is something they're not a huge fan of, um, specifically because they uh, you know, feel like in a state with a supermajority Republican legislature, uh, executive branch, um, that this will consolidate power in a way. And, and that's one of the questions I posed of Mike McKell. Well, okay, if you're going to appoint the AG, it, uh, who's to say that the AG isn't just going to do the bidding of the governor and the mm -hmm. legislature because he aligns or she aligns with them politically? And his response to that is obviously they'll be vetted by the Senate, appointed by the governor and vetted. So lots of eyes on this person to make sure they can remain neutral and independent. Um, but I think that's a concern of, mm -hmm. of the people of Utah. Some are saying, and I want to show this clip for the, from the governor in just a moment, uh, but he's looking at it. The, this through the lens of kind of like what sometimes you do with judges, for example. They're appointed by the governor, they're approved by the Senate, and then a retention election of some sort. I think this is an important distinction right here to see if it gets any traction because, as Daniel mentioned a moment ago, Sean Reyes was appointed by Governor Herbert to fill uh, the term of John Swallow, but he, of course, runs since then. But what does the governor have to say about this or to do with it ultimately? Here's the clip. The question I've, I've always had, and this has nothing to do with our, our current attorney general. I have a great relationship with, with, with Sean. This is not in any way um, focused on him at all. But I, when you run for office in the criminal justice system, there is a, a little bit of a perverse incentive there. It's why we don't, it's, it's why we don't have judges run for office. In lots of states, um, judges have to get elected, just like governors and mayors and, and city council members. But, but we decided that because you're dealing with criminal justice, 
um, you need to make sure that you're that there is no undue influence there and so we have a governor that appoints judges um, a senate who confirms those judges and then the, the judges do stand uh, for election it's it's a retention election which is which is different you get to say um, to the, the public gets to vote do we want to keep that judge or do we want to get rid of that judge so that that's a way where the um, where the public still has a say we're not taking that away from them so so I'm, that's that's an interesting model uh, but so Doug it looks like that wasn't a no that he's completely opposed to the idea well that's an interesting model he puts forward right I can see the value of that you still have the same problem how do you engage the electorate how do you let them understand that these people are leading you when there's so much going on with getting your child to school trying to buy a house trying to afford rent whatever you're trying to do um, but it's an interesting debate, and clearly it's it's not going away. It's only heightened right now. And we also haven't totally had an engaged electorate with the AG's race specifically to this point. I can't remember a contested AG's race in a long time where it was like this heated battle of who's going to be elected. Um, usually these people run unopposed. Our AG's run unopposed. So it's kind of one of those things like, it's like, yeah, whoever runs for it, we're good with that. Um, and so you do kind of need that, you know, the electorate, again, to really put the checks and balances on it, um, but at the same time, if you appoint it, then there's checks and balances with this, this method that the governor is suggesting. It's also interesting that the governor called it an interesting model. A week ago, he told me it was a better model. So he was supportive of it last week. We'll see how it goes down the road. But I think ultimately at the bottom of this, Jason, is there are concerns about unanswered questions about Sean Reyes's relationship with Tim Ballard, and that's what's really driving this right now. There have been concerns about past attorney generals, but the reason we're talking about it today is that Sean Reyes, according to many in elected office, including in his own party, has not been as forthcoming about his relationship with the founder of Operation Underground Railroad and the practices that they employed on those anti-trafficking missions. And a week and a half ago, we pushed Sean Reyes for answers, and his spokesperson really tried to shut it down. They ended up releasing a statement the next day. But even after that, Senator McKell said, I have concerns that questions have not been answered. And that's why we're seeing this debate playing out right now. Uh, we'll continue to watch this one as it goes forward, particularly if it gets into some legislation. Uh, Doug, I want to talk about what's happening in Washington, D.C. that has impacts all over the world, even here in the state of Utah. There is a serious battle going on for the Speaker of the House. Talk about what's happening right there as of today. Well, even today they're doing a, another vote to see if they can seat Jim Jordan. Mm -hmm. It was interesting, Kevin McCarthy introduced him today, put his uh, nomination forward. Um, but the big issue for me is, uh, the media is guilty of throwing around this word, word chaos, okay? I don't think it's chaos, I think it's the process. But you wanna gather it and make good decisions so that you can do the business of Congress. And right now that's holding up funding, $105 billion that, that the president wants to put forward for Ukraine, Israel, and other causes. Okay. Explain that a little bit, because one might not realize that not having a speaker is going to impact whether or not any of those funds can flow. Right, it speaks to the role of the speaker, what he puts, brings forward, what they debate, what they vote on. And right now, uh, President Biden uh, and other supporters um, want $60 billion for Ukraine. And the interesting thing there, that's to replenish our own reserves. So there's a domestic component to that. And he's putting forth $14 billion for Israel. Uh, I think another $14 billion as it relates to border security. So uh, those are big dollar amounts, but important dollar amounts to have America be 
the watchdog of the world, yeah. if you will. I think the reason yeah. it feels a little bit like chaos is because of the way this started, right, with this gang of eight that uh, ousted uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And this fraction of the Republican Party continues to control the narrative in terms of who is not mm -hmm. being elected as the Speaker of the House right now. In my conversations with Representative John Curtis, um, you know, it's interesting. I've, I talked to him before the Jim Jordan name got put forward. And so, um, you know, he was very much saying, I, I, I don't like the fact that this eight gained control, but it's not just eight, it's eight plus whatever votes they need. They have kind of this nebulous group of hardline conservatives in the House of Representatives who are able to kind of get the votes they need on whatever topic they need. So he kind of described it as this nebulous group, but we continue to see this faction not uh, um, uh, putting forward, like, supporting a Jim Jordan, and then the moderates now standing up and saying, okay, we don't want Jim Jordan as the speaker. Um, but I, I, I think it feels a little bit like chaos. You heard Governor uh, Cox yesterday call it an embarrassment mm -hmm. to the country and the party. I thought that was an interesting comment from him. And as I talked to Representative Blake Moore and John Curtis, I think they're feeling the same way, where it's just like, let's get this done. And that's maybe why you see them support people like Jim Jordan, even though they maybe don't align with him politically. They're like, we want to get this over with. We need to continue the business of the House of Representatives, this aid, this funding, all of this. The government's going to shut down in a few weeks if they don't make decisions here. So I think they want this chaos to end. Okay, well, let's talk about that for a moment. You mentioned Congressman Moore and Daniel. He's been pretty vocal about this. All four of our members of our congressional delegation voted for Jim Jordan, not because they necessarily love all of his politics, but because they want to get regular order back, particularly with a looming government shutdown. That's right, and there are a lot of serious business items that are needing to be taken up. It was interesting watching one of the recent videos that John Curtis put out on social media. He called it second grade. He said this is exactly what we would see with second graders in terms of what they've done so far and their inability to line up. And he made an interesting point. He said, I bet we could go down the entire roster of Republicans and nobody would win. And so there was this push to empower the speaker pro tem, Patrick McHenry, to have him have expanded powers and be able to at least move some of this business forward. For a while, it looked like Jim Jordan was going to support that and then did an about face and ended up not going that route. Ultimately, whenever this ends, however this ends, it'll be interesting to see. But certainly, I think there is a lot of frustration a lot among Republicans. And I think also one quick note, in Politico, there was this editor that said, this is really an illustration of the pre-Trump Republican Party and the post-Trump Republican Party trying to live together, and it's not working well. I, you know, don't forget, Kevin McCarthy struck a deal to keep government open, to keep service people paid, a very important compromise with Democrats, and then not a single Democrat voted to support him. Now, the Democrats can sit back, um, they can vote for Jeffries, but they can just wait there because it's politically expedient for them to do that rather than be politically expedient mm -hmm. to get the money to run the yeah. country and to protect the world. So all of Congress is playing a political game right now, and that's mm -hmm. extremely difficult. But well, I, I don't think it's chaos. I think this is the process, and they have to embrace the process to find a solution. Mm -hmm. So how do they get through this in, in your mind, Doug? Because uh, you essentially have maybe four Republicans that can really sway the entire vote. This third vote looks like it's, it's not going to happen. Uh, for Jim Jordan, you have a very small group that's able to influence the entire Congress. 
it took it took McCarthy what 15 votes 18 to get months. over the over the line. So I suspect they'll do this a few more times, um, and at some point they'll get tired, and at some point they'll say, okay, we need to reach a resolution, and some will compromise. Not everyone's just going to put a line in the sand. I mean, it is, it is a Congress that wants to get to work. Do we think it's going to be a name that has yet to be brought forward, or do we think it will be eventually the votes being there for a I don't know. Order? I'm hoping for Jason Perry to oh, be what? written in. <laughs> they don't have to be a member of the House. Okay, okay, we'll start now. So we, can, we, can, we can put your name forward. Uh, speaking of names that are coming forward, can we talk about our Senate race for just a moment? This has been an interesting week, Daniel. Uh, we're starting to see the disclosures, the financial disclosures. We have some candidates that are, have raised a a lot of money, and they've also been able to donate a lot of their own resources to their campaigns. Correct. You see news releases saying Brad Wilson has raised X amount of money, but you look at the fine print and he's given himself quite a bit of money while raising quite a bit of money as well. You have the Roosevelt mayor, Rod Bird, who's given himself a pretty sizable loan. Jason, I think it was a million dollars. Uh, that's right, a million and, dollars. Uh, and Trent Staggs gave himself tens of thousands as well. I think with some of these candidates, Bird may be a good example. His name idea isn't very high, so he's got to have money to be able to get it out there and probably doesn't have the wherewithal to raise that at the moment. So he gives himself some self-funds. Uh, Brad Wilson certainly has raised a lot of money, but needs to probably bolster himself and maybe discourage other Republicans who might be looking at the race saying, eh, if he's got that much money and I can't get that much money, maybe I don't want to get in. Yeah, go ahead, Lindsay. Uh, I was just going to say I agree with that. I think for Brad Wilson, it's a freeze the field type of effect where uh, you come out with, okay, I maybe raised 412 thousand dollars individually loan myself six hundred thousand dollars but I've raised a million dollars I have a million dollars on hand or two million yeah, million. yeah I have two million dollars on hand and so now uh, other people who can't self-fund themselves are saying I can't raise two million dollars I definitely can't so uh, money sort of talks in the campaigning world I would say of politics where it shows support it shows you have backing it discourages other people mm -hmm. from getting in it's still early in the Senate race so I'm really curious right now who else might get in the race to challenge a Brad Wilson and Trent Staggs and, and the mayor of Roosevelt at this point. Um, if we'll see any other big names, I... I thought there would be a name by I today really or a second, any. another name. Yeah, I, I haven't really heard any, and I don't know who it might be at this point unless it's Jason Perry. Oh, from my. The so I have another opportunity. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> we maybe should extend the show to an hour to go through a few. <laughs> campaign promises that uh, you may have. Uh -huh. I think so, Brad Wilson is trying to show strength, yeah. is what he's So he is for sure. And in, in fact, to that point, Doug, uh, he got a pretty interesting endorsement this week, kind of a strong one from the governor. Right. The governor supports him. And I think uh, it's not just money that's having influence. I think there are, I mean, he's been, he's been the leader of the House for quite a while. He has a lot of political friends. Uh, there's a lot of people who think he'll do a very good job. There's a lot of people, he'd be good for Utah. So there's both... Um, uh, there's a political calculation, a money calculation, but there's also, well, who will do the best job? And I yeah. think Republicans do line up uh, behind him, many uh, strong Republicans. Mm -hmm. And obviously the governor has the top seat in the state. So that was a big deal today yeah, or big one. this week. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to talk about what's happening with our presidential election a little bit because, like, seems to happen all the time. You got a Utah connection to some of these things. So, Lindsay, I want to talk about Senator Romney. He has he's started to weigh in even more heavily about how he thinks Republicans need to narrow that field. He, of course, he's talking about he doesn't want it to be President Trump, and for it not to be, we, they need to consolidate around a candidate. 
Yeah, and I don't really know how you do that. I think his um, his solution is stop funding people, right? Just like kind of freeze them out money-wise and, and just allow uh, coalesce around somebody, right? He's kind of made that call to um, big donors. But yeah, certainly at this point where there's, I don't even know the number right now, how many Republicans are in the field. It doesn't feel like, while, while Trump has a clear front-runner status in terms of polling, there's still a lot of polarization around him, still a lot of... Uh, uh, can we do another four years of President Trump? He's facing all the legal battles that he's facing, and those are coming to a head and will come to a head, especially around Super Tuesday. So he could have some convictions. He could have, uh, you know, continued charges he's facing. Um, so I do think there needs to be a coalescing, but how that happens, I'm just not totally sure I have the solution. Well, how about one that we read, which is interesting, Daniel, did, did Oprah Winfrey really say that <laughs> Mitt Romney should be president and she would be his vice president? I haven't read the full book that McKay Coppins <laughs> wrote on Romney, but apparently she did. And uh, Mike Lee tweeted, so does that mean Oprah's a Republican? <laughs> it's, uh, but she wanted that unity ticket. Jason, I think it's interesting, too, to see the pundits that keep watching world events and wondering if that will change the field at all. So this week, uh, someone, I can't remember who, was saying this is the time for Nikki Haley and Mike Pence to shine with Israel and Gaza and all of that, you know, their world experience. And other times it's been other issues and, and or, or Trump's legal battles. Will any of this shake up the field in any meaningful way? I do think, again, we're still a couple months out. It's early. But at this point, none of those Republican candidates has been able to vault themselves to the point where they probably want to be. But there are still a few months uh -huh. ahead. There is, um, there's a couple of things happening. One, Paul Ryan was here in Utah uh, several times the past uh, past 10 days, and he's an anybody but Trump person and wants anyone to win but Donald Trump. You have the no labels group, and if it's Trump versus Biden, the no labels group will put forward a ticket, and there will be a third party ticket. We spoke with them at the Desert News specifically about that, and they've lobbied for people to do that. But they're waiting to see what happens. So after mm -hmm. Super Tuesday, Mitt Romney wants the Republicans to coalesce around a candidate separate from Trump. We've mm -hmm. talked to some presidential candidates, and no one's really ready to go down that path yet. So yeah. I really think we get to February, March, and then it's really going to see what's happening. Wow, Doug makes such an interesting point, Lindsay, with people you are interviewing, too, about whether or not, given how polarized the candidates are in terms of their support, there really is an opportunity here for a no-labels or an independent candidate. Uh, the ticket to go forward. Yeah, and I think the majority of Americans, and I, maybe this is just my personal opinion, I'm not sure I'm supposed to share, but um, maybe polling vets this out, but I just think Americans are craving for a middle-of-the-road type of, like, I support some on this side, I support some on that side, but our current political system doesn't allow for that. You have to either be all-in Republican or all-in Democrat, and, you know, it, it, Obviously, people have their ideals, and that's important. Um, but, but politically, it doesn't. Our system doesn't really allow for someone to run middle of the road, right? It doesn't allow for someone to say. I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative. It feels like it's all or nothing on either side. You have to be all socially liberal and all fiscally liberal or the other way around. And so I think it really will be interesting to see if America, if the nation um, really supports a third party candidate, maybe this is the time where that sticks. Interesting. I, I want to get one more aspect of the potential candidates coming forward uh, with a, a poll that the Hinckley Institute did with, with you, Doug, with the Deseret News, because we wanted to see what was happening with sort of our aging 
uh, elected uh, officials here. And so we asked the question uh, whether or not, you, uh, this is just to Utahns, whether or not there should be a maximum age for elected officials, meaning that uh, under, they have to be under a certain age to be permitted to hold office. Just, we have a lot of senior uh, folks in uh, Congress in particular, and this has become a, a conversation. Interestingly enough, 64% of Utahns, Doug, said they think there should be an age limit on running for office, and that age, 70, 70 years old. Yeah, that makes me a little uncomfortable the older I get. Um, <laughs> but, but you can still run, turns out. I mean, again, it's um, such a one note today, but the electorate is in charge. You can put people in Congress who can do the job. We've seen examples of people who maybe have stayed too long. You know, we lost Diane Feinstein. I'm originally from California. Yeah. I've followed her. My mother was in her sorority. Um, so that was a, such an amazing career, and it was tough to see that last year um, with her. Um, but Mitt Romney, others in their 70s are certainly effective, certainly working hard. I hate to put an age limit on that. Yeah. If well, I have, yeah. New, 70 is the new 50, yeah. let's be honest. I mean, maybe 80, if you had to uh -huh. put a number on it. I was surprised it was so low, mm -hmm. if that's low. Yeah, I think 70, wow, you know. I know a lot of 70-year-olds, and they yeah. seem kind of young to me. Yeah. Uh, and, they're, and they're working. Younger all the they're time. still in the workforce, They're still busy. Right? They're still yeah. busy. They're so still that's... going. I've also seen 80- and 90-year-olds still going and, and very yeah. sharp. Uh, it's very interesting to put a number on it because I think at the end of the day, when we discuss this, it's because there are certain people of certain ages that are raising questions about their me uh, mental ability or competence or whatnot. There are others that are not. And so, you know, cutting it off, I think you're going to cut off some, yeah, that might be problematic, but others that mm -hmm. could still go on to serve, it would certainly disqualify a Mitt Romney or others that we've seen in the state, and Orrin Hatch that was there for quite a while. Yeah, so, so Lindsay, some of these elected officials, including Mitt Romney, actually stated one of their considerations was, was age. Yeah, and I think the question is, um, how do you not necessarily remove someone, but what happens when that person becomes unable to do the job or appear mentally unfit or mentally, or, you know, not able to kind of continue the work? How does that process happen? I mm -hmm. think that's what we're trying to get at with the age question. And so one of the solutions is just put a cap on it, just put an age limit, right? But like Daniel was saying, there are plenty of 80 and 90 year olds still working and still effective. However, there are some 70 year olds who maybe need to yeah. hang it up. And well, so and there's the great wisdom. I mean, if, if you have people who've had a fantastic career and they're 65 or 70 and they can give a, a six year term or two terms, Mm -hmm. to Congress, you want that wisdom there. So it's very difficult to say, no, anyone yeah. after this age, we don't want them. Yeah, and, and some are definitely arguing, so there is a way to do this, and it's through the, the ballot box. Yeah, we just have to get engaged. We have to get off the couch and... And I don't, you know. I don't disagree with your notion at all. Thanks for that. That's all great. power to the voters, but we haven't seen that happen. We haven't seen... I'm optimistic. I know, and it's great, uh, but we haven't seen some of these long-standing older people being removed when, you know, a, a Senator Mitch McConnell, when, when the health really becomes an issue. Well, there's we, power, too, right? Yeah. I mean, Orrin Hatch was there for yeah. a long time, yeah. so Utah has an outsized influence when you have someone there for a long time. Mm -hmm. So. The electorate might not even be wanting to give up that power. That yeah. might be true. Thank you so much for these great insights this evening on some very critical issues. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.